0: You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle.
1: And welcome to Belaboured number 43, where we bring you the week's news. And we're going to start with a little news roundup. Um, after months of federal budget cutbacks and a long standing freeze of the pay rates of federal employees, President Obama tried to soothe the economic anxieties of the government's workforce by proposing a lavish 1% pay raise. Yes. I know. Oohs and ahs. Um, But unions, of course, were quick to shoot back by saying that this proposed increase was rather insultingly low and actually failed to keep up with the rising cost of living. And they're asking for something more around the order of 3% in a pay raise. Um, Mind you, they've been having their wages frozen for quite some time now, so they felt like this is, you know, only um, basically what they were owed uh, for all those years of freezes. Lately, the issue has gotten attention Primarily because of these deep cross-the-board cuts that Congress has enacted as a result of the so-called budget sequestration. Um, And uh, there was, uh, you know, within that swirl of all this budget controversy, there was a proposal recently by lawmakers to cut back on military pensions. And of course, and everyone. When anyone talks about the military budget, um, all hell breaks loose. However, it should be noted that civilian government workers, that is, the federal employees who do work in agencies that do other things than, you know, waging war in other parts of the world, have been suffering from benefit cuts, furloughs, and wage freezes for quite some time now. And uh, the military personnel has been getting, mind you, yearly pay raises throughout Obama's tenure. So what does this all mean? Well, um, right now it looks like the 1% number is uh, what they're going to get. and It's an
0: unfortunate number, isn't it?
1: The 1%. The 1%, yes. You'll see there's a recurring theme here. Um, sadly, th- this actually coincides with, um, remember all that hoopla the, the, around uh, the State of the Union address and Obama's big executive order to raise uh, pay, the minimum wage for federal contract workers? Well, it seems like that, that seems to contrast with you know the sort of uh, your sharp erosion of wages that uh, regular federal employees have suffered. Um, during his tenure, and uh, it, it's sad because unions have noted repeatedly that um, the budget cuts and the a- inadequate wage levels are not only affecting the quality and availability of government services currently, but they're having a long-term impact on the government by making it a less attractive place to work. That means in the future, people will have trouble, even more trouble, getting services because, frankly, the government jobs that they once saw as secure and stable and also a public benefit uh, to the greater good um, are are now being eroded and turned into, you know, crappy jobs just like they would get in the private sector. So it's kind of a, you know, a a no value added proposal. We wouldn't want people to have good stable jobs in the, public sector now, would we? No, of course not, because we need someone to blame for the rising
0: cost of pensions that are, of course, the reason our economy is being crippled. Sarcasm, sarcasm. Well, <laughs> well, I, I am here to give you good news from at least um, some public sector workers, which um, if you listen to last week's episode of the podcast, we talked to a teacher from Portland, Oregon about the almost strike that they had there. Um, Medford teachers who were on strike for 11 days are now back in the classroom. And St. Paul, Minnesota teachers, who also had a a brush with strikedom, did manage to get a fairly good contract out of their willingness to go to a strike. So what do we learn from all of this? Um, You win when you fight back, as uh, a Massachusetts teacher once told me, not that long ago. Um, More importantly, that these school districts, all three of them in very different places, had the same, a similar message to the one we saw in Chicago. Um, They organized with the community around issues that the community cared about, around standardized testing, around class size, around what they call wraparound services in the school. So that's like counselors, nurses. um, They really worked with parents, with students, especially in the case of Portland, where the student organ- the students have organized a student union and have held student strikes against standardized testing. And they, in each case, they didn't get everything they wanted, um, but they made progress. And, you know, again, I'm going to take my little victory lap here and say that this is something I, I thought that we would see some interesting movement around public schools this year. I didn't, expect this much this soon so i'm quite excited thank you portland st paul and medford for proving me right and um i will have a piece up on the details of these victories soon
1: high five um, so, in uh, another thing that we probably could have called earlier, um, nuclear catastrophe is now besetting uh, Japan. Um, in case you have forgotten, as most of the world seems to have, uh, back in 2011, there was a gigantic meltdown and uh, disaster um, following the tsunami that hit Japan, and it was at the Fukushima uh, Daiichi nuclear power plant. And health authorities in Japan, um, you know, three years later, um, have finally woken up to the idea that, ooh, maybe. some of those workers are kind of at risk. So they've actually launched a health monitoring program for 2,000 of the workers who are deployed to the site and uh, worked uh, in various capacities for TEPCO, the big um, Japanese energy company that is responsible for, uh, you know, basically the entire nuclear power industry, and also serves as its own regulator, which is, as you can see, kind of problematic, especially when you have workers who have been exposed to unprecedented levels of radiation. And mind you, um, a lot of th- there's been a lot of stuff that's come out recently about how oh the health fears were overblown around the uh, Fukushima zone because. Um, You know, residents were safely evacuated and um, they were kept away until the situation was stabilized. But while those people were being evacuated, there were workers actively sort of throttling themselves into the front lines of disaster because they were the ones working on the site, trying to repair the site as it underwent repeated crises and leaks in the months following. So um, as we can see with so many of these um, occupational health and safety issues around various uh, volatile industries such as nuclear power, the workers are... Are over and over again, the canary in the coal mine. Um, and they are the ones who are basically on the front lines of all these huge hazards. And we sadly tend not to uh, realize what kind of risk they're under until it hits us, until it starts polluting our drinking water and still starts contaminating our soil. Um, we saw uh, recently with the BP um, oil rig disaster, uh, the, the workers who died with that, that was just a, a symptom of a huge sort of malaise across the regulatory system where you have lax and corporations that are operating with impunity and we saw this with the chemical spill recently in West Virginia Houston Chronicle had a huge investigation that just came out this week about uh, patterns of worker deaths um, on oil drilling sites and, and in the oil industry and that's that's just in Texas alone right and and this is a state that thrives on oil, it's, oil is, is the sort of pride of their industry and so um, we really have to think as consumers and as workers about the real costs of all of this cheap energy and and, you know, while it may seem very far away, uh, the thing about nuclear catastrophe is that it has the potential to really just sort of hit the entire planet. So, you know, uh, you know, but, you know, uh, you know, thank God for nuclear power because it's it's clean. Right.
0: Supposedly. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, from the health of workers to healthcare workers longtime listeners to this podcast know that I've been I've spent quite a lot of time following the story of Long Island College Hospital in Brooklyn, which um, among many other hospitals that have faced cuts and closures in the in New York City in recent years, um, was on the chopping block and Long Island College Hospital was and is, Fairly unique in that it is in a very, very high demand area of Brooklyn, and its property is valued at some like five billion dollars altogether. Um, but it looks like that property is now quite unlikely to become a bunch of high end condos because the deal that the um, New York State Nurses Association. Uh, 1199 SEIU, several community groups, and the elected officials, including our now mayor, Bill de Blasio, struck with SUNY Downstate, which owns the hospital, is really sort of amazing and unprecedented in that the community actually gets input in the request for proposals for companies to take over this property, well, this hospital, I should say, because they will—they have won the right to give precedence to any bid that includes the proposal to keep a full-service hospital there. That means not an urgent care center with a bunch of fancy condos around it. That means a full-service hospital that will actually continue to serve the people of Red Hook, say, who were left without power for weeks after Hurricane Sandy, um, to continue to serve the people of downtown Brooklyn, of park slope of cobble hill yes um so you're saying they need health services more than they need luxury condos? I'm saying it's weird I, like that, that is isn't just, it? That blows my yeah, mind. Yeah, no, it's it's actually it's. I mean, this is a significant victory in terms of healthcare access. It's a significant victory in terms of worker community organizing, and it's a significant victory in terms of housing in New York, which is a subject we'll be returning to. Well, but we'll be, we'll be returning to the subject of gentrification shortly. Um, but for now, yeah, who knew? The community actually has the right to say, we don't actually need any more luxury condos. We actually need to make sure that if we have an accident or get sick, have a heart attack, have a chronic illness, we should be able to get health care. Yeah. Now, next step, universal health care. Right. right. If, if but the, nurses are, to the yes. nurses are on that too. for that health The uh, nurses are on that too. That's that's another story. We right. will talk about that sometime soon. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. We have discussed on this podcast before, and I'm sure many of our listeners are aware that the San Francisco Bay Area is undergoing sort of gentrification on steroids these days. We have with us today Julia Carey Wong, who is a freelance journalist based in the Bay Area. She writes for Salon, In These Times, Miscellaneous Other Places, and uh, she is now going to be a contributor to, to Katie Sipp's Hack the Union blog, which I have possibly mentioned on this podcast before. If not, I am quite a fan of Katie's blog and the newsletter, and will be happy to see Julia joining. So, Julia is joining us to talk about gentrification in the Bay Area, labor, tax breaks, and much, much more.
1: So, Julia, most people associate Silicon Valley with economic growth and innovation and the economy of the future, but how do people in San Francisco feel about the presence of the tech sector in their neighborhoods? How has the tech boom affected life for your average working-class resident?
2: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, And... You know, I think it's been, it's been a very mixed bag. What we've seen with, you know, this second round of the tech boom is kind of a very unequal, obviously, distribution of income. Um, You have a ton of money flowing into the hands of a very, you know, small number of people at the same time that you have Uh, this, you know, this working class base of San Franciscans who, you know, were hit very hard by the recession, which really, you know, for the, for the main industries in San Francisco that, um, folks work in the tourism industry, the healthcare industry, the public sector were all hit really hard by the recession. Um, folks, you know, really haven't seen a lot of recovery in those sectors, um, and now there's been this massive influx of, you know, just money coming into the city that's all concentrated in a small number of people. And it's done, you know, it's done a lot of damage to communities because uh, the, you know, as soon as, as folks with that much money start, you know, wanting to move into San Francisco, the real estate speculators, um, you know, jump at that. And we've seen a huge increase in evictions in and, and, you know, for every eviction that happens, it gets recorded on the books of like the rent board. The housing activists estimate that you have about five more either buyouts or self evictions where people are faced with so much, you know, harassment from their landlords that they decide to just up and leave before, you know, the sheriff's knocking at their door. Um, so we're really seeing, you know, a lot of the, the base of San Francisco, the working class people of color that, you know, work in the service sector, work in the public sector, um, the hospitals that are being pushed out into the suburbs and what's coming in their place is, you know, highly paid tech workers and, and it's just changing the city.
1: How have the social and uh, sort of ethnic landscapes changed as a result of that? What's happening specifically to, say, communities of color and these longstanding immigrant enclaves that have long made up the social fabric of places like San Francisco?
2: You're seeing all of these communities under an incredible amount of stress, whether it's Chinatown or the Mission, which is the traditionally Latino community, or Bayview-Hunter's Point, which is, you know, the the last stand of African-Americans in San Francisco, they're all seeing a lot of stress. Um, you know, there's a lot of fear in these communities. And then um, where, you know, it's it's so often it's the elders that end up being the subject of, like, evictions. Folks who are on fixed incomes, folks who have been in their housing for a long time, so they are paying, you know, Rent that's significantly below the market value because they have rent control, and they become the targets for. Um, they become the targets for the evictions, um, and really just you know, uh, I guess in in November or December, I went to what was the first of the um, kind of tenant assembly meetings that uh, grassroots community organizations held in various neighborhoods leading up to. Uh, a citywide tenants convention. And I went to the one for the mission. And so it was a group of, you know, mostly Latino and African American and some uh, Asian American folks who came together to talk about what they were seeing in their neighborhood. And um, what people were saying was, you know, they were really describing a sense of alienation from the place that they lived in for decades where, um, you know, all of the old restaurants and, and shops that people, you know, had been that had been part of people's communities had been pushed out. There were all these new restaurants that folks can't afford to go to. One guy was saying, you know, it's it's so noisy at night from all of the folks who are like, you know, coming out to the bars and being really loud that, you know, he can't have his window open anymore, which is just, you know, like a sadness for his life um, to not be able to like have, you know, fresh air coming in because he doesn't feel like the neighborhood is the same as what it used to be. Um, and another guy was even talking about how, you know, the, the last laundromat in his neighborhood is now being pushed out for another expensive restaurant. Um, and, you know, it's not to be, you know, like overly sentimental about a laundromat, but he was like, that's the place where I would always see my neighbor's and now it's going to be another restaurant where none of you know the neighbors that I've known my whole life can afford to eat.
0: So you wrote a piece about the tax breaks that are given to big tech companies like Twitter sort of specifically in exchange for promises to sort of donate to charity and like encourage their employees to go to an art museum or something. You talk about the ways in which this is really failing to fix the problems of inequality in the Bay Area?
2: Basically, um, what happened was that, you know, just as we were in the, you know, still kind of in the depths of the Great Recession, um, we got a new mayor, Ed Lee, and the tech industry started to flex their muscle. And we saw this happening with Zynga, uh, which is like the kind of not particularly successful mobile game app company and also with Twitter where they basically went to city hall and they said, San Francisco has a, uh, like a one and a half percent payroll tax and we don't want to pay it anymore. So we're going to move to Brisbane or, you know, one of the cities that's right across the border to the South of San Francisco where we won't have to pay the taxes unless you, unless you give us a tax break. Um, And the, the city, you know, fell for that bait and uh, rewrote laws in order to give these pretty remarkably large tax breaks to companies. And the, the Twitter tax break was not just given to it, but to any other uh, tech companies that move into this um, neighborhood. It's, they're calling it Central Market. It used to be the Tenderloin. It's kind of a you know a holdout of ungentrified San Francisco. And in exchange, the deal was that they would have to sign community benefits agreements, right. which are basically these kind of laughably n- unbinding and you know not particularly accountable agreements that substitute this kind of neoliberal idea of you know charity and feel good community building through volunteering and soup kitchens yes. for. You know, what the city really needs, which is just revenue in the San Francisco General Fund, which pays for all the services that a city needs. Um, So, Twitter, I I spoke to um, uh, a representative from Twitter about their tax deal, and, you know, he was very defensive about this deal. And he said, you know, we're giving a total of $388,000 to nonprofits, and that's twice as much, you know, cash as we were giving. The year before and how much would they have paid in taxes (laughs) it's it that's less than 1% of what they would have paid in taxes I mean it's rough estimates but something around 56 million dollars because of their massive IPO right that could have gone into you know schools and parks and paying for public services
1: Yeah, I wish I could set my taxes voluntarily. That would be great if I could pay whatever I wanted to. Um, So you talked about the community benefits agreements and how these have been sort of a very weak and haphazard measure that the government has put forward as a way to hold these corporations accountable. Um, How has the government really responded to this onslaught of Silicon Valley uh, development that's been going on around San Francisco? Do you feel like the local officials are kind of in cahoots with um, the tech giants or how are they? trying to, you know, balance or kind of weigh the interests of the public against the interests of these companies?
2: Um, I mean, I think that we we have a very divided government right now. I mean, everybody looks at San Francisco and we have uh, 11 members of the Board of Supervisors, which is like our city council, and they're all Democrats. And we have a Democratic mayor, but it's not the divisions are still there, (laughs) And, you know, locally, it's kind of the division between the business-friendly Democrats and the progressive Democrats. And the mayor is very much a business-friendly Democrat. And he got elected very much with, you know, massive donations from a group of tech millionaires and billionaires really led by this guy, Ron Conway, who's a legendary angel investor, venture capitalist. And who has made it his mission kind of publicly for the last five or six years that he wanted to remake San Francisco into, you know, a business friendly, democratic, you know, bastion. And he, you know, he literally said we need to we need to get the take our city back from the progressives. Um, so along with, you know, I mean, Ed Lee, he spends so much time in meetings, talking directly to tech companies, you know, closed doors meetings. Ron Conway has started this kind of um, civic lobbying type group called sf.city, C-I-T-I. Um, and there, you know, it's it's kind of this mix of like very technocratic, um, you know, we, we are the tech industry, we know how to fix things, um, and it's all about, you know, Competition and investing in charity, but you know, at bottom, lower our taxes. Um, and then you have the board of supervisors, which has, um, which has some power and which, you know, without the leadership of a mayor in the last year or so has really been galvanized to try to run a more progressive agenda. And, you know, as much as possible, get around the mayor, which is hard because, you know, they need an extra number of votes to over, you know, to overcome a veto. Um, And definitely we have a a state assembly race for kind of the eastern half of San Francisco, which is pitting two of the more progressive supervisors against each other. And I think that that has also really helped to... um, It's helped to like push what's happening in the Board of Supervisors in a more uh, tenant friendly, uh, community focused way, because they're obviously both trying to compete for the votes of the very people that um, are feeling threatened by, you know, all these changes that are happening in San Francisco. So we're starting to see, you know, an agenda moving through the Board of Supervisors that is focused on tenant protections, and you know, trying to have a little bit more uh accountability for what's going on from the mayor's office, right
1: so we see sort of the outsized political influence of this um this set of, you know, white collar Silicon Valley professionals. What has been the role of, um, you know, regular, um, regular workers such as the staff workers on these big tech industry campuses? Can you talk about what role, if any, they're playing in this new Silicon Valley workforce? I mean, what's been the role of, say, you know, people who staff the cafeterias or, you know, who provide security? What's their, what are their working conditions like?
2: Um, as far as I can tell, their working conditions are pretty bad. I mean, I, I, I don't have any firsthand knowledge, um, of what it's like to work in the cafeteria in one of these campuses. They're quite closed off and, you know, kind of isolated from the, uh, from the rest of the public, you know, they're on these campuses far out, um, you know, away from regular public transportation that regular people can take, um. But the SCIU United Service Workers West Union, is trying to run an organizing campaign of the security guards that work on some of these tech company campuses. Um, I know that, um, you know, there's interest in organizing the food service workers who are definitely. And, you know, in the first tech boom, there were also some organizing drives of the food service workers. And it's always, you know, there's just such a vast difference between. For any, you know, any of these hourly wage jobs between what, you know, a company will give on its own, which might be a little bit above minimum wage, but, you know, without any benefits, without any job security, with, you know, no seniority and work rules and and what there is with, um, you know, union protection. So that's definitely something where um, I know that that unions are um, hoping to make some inroads.
0: Yeah. You also, you have a piece up this week at In These Times about um, the struggles of SEIU Local 1021, which is the public sector workers union in San Francisco, trying to get decent pay for its workers while these tech companies are getting these massive tax breaks. So, you know, on the one hand, you see these workers getting squeezed by the gentrification you're talking about. On the other, they're being forced to take pay cuts, even as all this money is supposedly coming into the the city. Um, What are some of the solutions they're calling
2: for? You know, I think, that, um, I think that one of the things that is really exciting about what's happening in San Francisco is that we're seeing the labor unions actually, um, you know, so far in, in a really productive, it seems like, and creative way are talking with housing groups and are talking with community groups. And I mean, this, this has always happened. San Francisco has a, has a great coalition between community and labor groups. Mm -hmm. Um, But specifically around, you know, these housing issues, you're really seeing some of the more progressive unions get 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 a lot more engaged. And And I think also starting to potentially take leadership from the housing and the community groups, which is, I think, is always really important that, you know, when we see labor unions willing to accept ideas from community groups, that's always, to me, a good sign. Um, because so often it, it happens the other way around. So, you know, SCIU 10 to 1, it's, it's a very democratic and progressive union in San Francisco. Um, and some of the stuff that they've been looking at is how do you take the issues of what's going on um, in in our city's policies and make them relevant at the bargaining table? Um, and that's that's, you know, what they really did with their recent protest at Twitter You know, on a strict basis, you know, the tax breaks that Twitter has received don't really belong in a bargaining conversation about the 10 to 1, you know, 2014 contract. Like, that's not the kind of thing that would normally come up at the bargaining table. Yeah. But they're really you know, they're really trying to broaden that conversation. And since they have a bargaining relationship with the city's leaders, they're saying, you know, we want to hold you accountable yeah. to the other decisions that you've been making. Um, yeah. They've also, they filed a, they filed an appeal about the Google bus um, kind of a sweetheart deal that yeah. the tech companies received. Um, and so they're chart, they're challenging this idea that the tech companies who have been illegally using um, public bus stations for the past 10 years. And have just received from the city kind of a, an agreement that will just regularize that situation without any kind of punitive measures and without any kind of, you know, higher fees that might, you know, mitigate what's been going on. Yeah. Um, a 10 to 1 with with some other um, community groups has jumped in and say, actually, we're going to appeal that and force that to go to the Board of Supervisors and, you know, force a, a more you know, intensive scrutiny of, of what this deal looks like.
0: Yeah, you, you actually sort of anticipated my next question there because you, you also had a piece up recently at Salon about the Google bus and about, you know, it's sort of become the giant symbol of, of all everything that's wrong with, with Silicon Valley, but also you did talk about this, the way that, like, ordinary people pay some ridiculous fine if they block a, a municipal bus stop, but this deal that... Google was going to get again, which ends up taking money out of the city's pockets. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah. So basically what's what has happened is that the tech companies that have um, campuses in Silicon Valley, as well as, you know, some of the ones that are here in San Francisco, rather than, say, investing in, you know, paying their taxes so that everybody in, in the Bay Area could have a better public transportation system. What they started to do about 10 years ago was just build a private transportation system um, strictly for their own users, you know, for their own employees. So they contract with private um, bus companies. The main one is this company called Bowers. And so they're, you know, first of all, they're contracting with non-union labor. to provide this transportation. So, you know, whereas the MTA, the public buses and the BART is run by union workers, um, they're able to obviously undercut that by using a private company that is not unionized. And they've just, they've just taken advantage of the public infrastructure, which is, you know, the system of bus stops around the city to, um, you know, kind of Be like a parasite that's um, taking advantage of it, but not actually adding anything into the overall system. And the, you know, the the Muni system and the city really just turned a blind eye to this, despite the fact that residents complained a lot about it because it's not, you know, I mean, it's not pleasant to have massive you know, charter buses on these narrow streets in residential neighborhoods, you know, they take up space, they, you know, the bike people who bike a lot in San Francisco complain about how, you know, they hurt visibility and they're blocking the buses all the time. Yeah. And, you know, for me, what, what really is just unconscionable about the way that this has been treated is that um, for the past many years, the Muni system has had, you know, some really um, disturbing policies in place where they're trying to, you know, amp up fare collection and amp up, you know, enforcement of people paying their fare on the bus, uh, which has basically meant that they are criminalizing the poverty of folks who don't necessarily have $2, but need to get where they need to go. And, you know, Before this past year, which is when a coalition of community groups were able to get a pilot program launched, which provides free muni for youth, that's only been in the last year. And prior to that, um, school children, because there's no yellow bus system in San Francisco, if kids can't walk to their school, which most kids can't because we have a Kind of a, a very it's you know it's we don't have a neighborhood school system we have a system where people go to school all around the city, um so if your parents can't drop you off and if you don't or you don't live within walking distance you have to take the bus, and that's four dollars a day and a lot of kids just don't have that money, um and so you know Muni started doing this really intense kind of saturation raids where they would have you know twenty muni and sfpd enforcement officers with guns going onto buses ticketing everybody charging people up to a hundred dollars for not having a fare and at the same time you know at these same stations you have um private buses that are also engaging in you know quote-unquote illegal behavior who are not being fined you know and who would by all rights be facing a 271 seventy-one dollar fine for you know using that Bus stop. A reporter in San Francisco recently did a public information request and found all of these emails where it showed that, um, you know, at a certain point, Google did get a handful of tickets and they actually hired a lobbying firm to, you know, go in um, and kind of strong arm the MTA into retracting those tickets. Um, So it's just this completely unequal treatment of folks who actually need and depend on public transportation. And then the folks for whom it, it's a really nice option and it's a perk. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not a matter of like whether they're going to eat that day. Right. Um,
1: speaking of just the issue of public transit infrastructure in general, uh, is it is it right to say that this is all part of is this related to the whole BART system overall?
2: Um, so the the BART and Muni are separate systems. Okay. BART is an inner county um, You know, it 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 covers several counties, so it has its own kind of governmental body and its own budget. And then Muni is just for San Francisco and it has its own budget and its own, um, you know, local control. Um, But all of these, you know, and then there's also there's Caltran, which, you know, covers goes up and down the peninsula as well. Like there's all of these different overlapping systems, all of which are basically underfunded and, you know, Could be, uh, could be so much better if they had more funding, if there was more investment coming into them. And if that investment instead of coming, you know, being squeezed out of working people $2 at a time was maybe coming from these massive corporations that are making massive profits and benefiting from the infrastructure that already exists.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, the, there's there's a funding crisis that affects consumers of public transit, but, um, you know, BART had, you know, massive labor troubles, um, you know, I- in recent months, and, and it, you see sort of an overall budget crisis that's really um, weighing really heavily on the entire public transit infrastructure, so it just makes it all the more outrageous that these huge corporations that definitely have the money to pay are simply opting out of it while still sponging off of the public infrastructure, so, yeah. Yeah.
2: And I mean, I think that, you know, one of the arguments that the tech companies always make is that this is environmental um, and that, you Mm -hmm. know, because if if they didn't have the buses, everybody would just drive and that would be adding so much more carbon to the atmosphere. Um, And what the what other you know, what folks in kind of the opposition are saying is that they, they don't have any proof of that. Yeah. And. The, the extra, you know, the, the factor that hasn't been considered is that because of the bus, it, because the buses have made it so much easier for tech workers who work, um, you know, 40 miles away to live in San Francisco, that's raised the prices and it's forced, um, you know, the working class folks out of the city. Um, those folks are still working in the city, you know, in the hotels and in the schools and, Um, you know, or as janitors, like all these folks, they're still working in the city in the service sectors, but they're being forced to commute now into the city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't have, um, you know, company provided luxury coaches Mm -hmm. that are bringing them in from Contra Costa County. Mm -hmm. Um, They're, you know, probably having to drive to bar or drive all the way in. And so, you know, it's not the, the cost is just being shifted onto the people that can afford to pay it the least. It's not actually disappearing.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, right, that like working class people who take public transit are never given credit or thought to be concerned about the environment. It's only sort of well-off people who are high-minded enough to care about that. It's just sort of ridiculous. So my last question you sort of gave me a good lead into this there, but also I sort of wanted to broaden this for a second because you were a labor organizer for quite a long time in in the Bay Area, um, working with these service employees, right? Working with hotel workers, working with um, the people who are more and more actually the face of the American economy. What you know, tech boosterism and manufacturing nostalgia aside, can you talk about some lessons from the work that you did with those workers that we can apply to? the broader problems that we have with the economy?
2: So I guess, you know, what I think has been really what I had the chance to do when I was working with Local 2, which is the hotel workers union in San Francisco, um, is basically get to know um, the San Francisco that most of the tech workers and most of the, you know, the San Francisco media, the tech media, will never know and, you know, seems to have no interest in getting to know. Um, and it's basically, you know, the working class immigrant families who are really quite incredible. I mean, you know, with the with the backing of the union have really, you know, achieved a standard for service workers in San Francisco that is, that's almost breathtaking. I mean, housekeepers in San Francisco um, through the union make more than twenty dollars an hour, which, you know, makes the I mean, it puts into perspective that, you know, for like the fifteen dollar an hour campaign that's going on around the country like this is possible. The, the tourist industry in San Francisco remains incredibly. It remains incredibly profitable. And yet you have, um, you know, all of these Latina and Chinese uh, housekeepers who are able to really raise their families on these jobs in dignity. And for me, I think that that is, you know, this is where really powerful and important organizing is happening, you know? And for me, like, it's it's so much about the women. Every picket line that I've ever been on, um, you know, and I've been on a lot of picket lines over the last four years, eh, 60% women, you know, they're like the backbone that has been, carrying the the labor movement in San Francisco and really raising the standard for service workers. And, you know, I, I think that in, in the national media and kind of when, you know, you see a lot of folks kind of looking at what's the future of the labor movement in America and talking about, you know, the UAW, which is, you know, had a 1,600-person shop, um, you know, in one of the most male... Uh, industries, uh, very white, um, dominated industry. Um, that's not the future of labor in this country. Um, it's just, it's just the fact that, you know, the, the future of labor is not going to be in industrialized, like factories. That, that, you know, that's not really where we, we're going to see organizing happening. And it's not where the organizing is happening right now. I think that it's, you know, it's the unions that are, Um, really embracing uh, these, you know, embracing women as organizers, embracing communities of color that are looking to the immigrant workers um, and seeing the promise, that's where we're really seeing folks like make gains and learn new ways to organize, whether it's, you know, domestic workers or fast food workers or hotel workers, service workers in general, the nurses I think that makes total sense. It should be noted. I
1: mean, it's nice to end on a positive note because for all the troubles that San Francisco is having with gentrification, it is also a place that's leading the country in terms of its minimum wage, its paid sick days policy and all these other things, these progressive gains that working people, union and non-union workers, have been fighting for for a very long time. So I guess you know, we're, all, we're all rooting for you in terms of holding on to what you fought for as well as stabbing off this brutal wave of gentrification that
2: you're all facing now. Thank you. And that's, you know, I mean, all of those gains were made by coalitions between labor and community groups coming together to fight for that, whether it's the minimum wage or paid sick leave or our like first in the nation kind of um, universal health care. All of those things happen because community and labor, you know, come together and then leverage political power. Um, the frightening thing is that if more and more and more of the union members and of the you know the bases of the community organizations get pushed out that political power is going to wane and so this is really like a fight for san francisco's ability to remain at the cutting edge of workers rights and at the cutting edge of you know having progressive values enshrined in public policy
1: And that was Julia Carey Wong. She's a freelance writer and activist based in San Francisco. And now we're going to hear a little bit from Kung Fung of Jobs with Justice based in San Francisco. And he's going to talk a little bit about what the community impacts um, that he's observed have been uh, since the onslaught of the Silicon Valley tech boom in the Bay Area. And here he is. So there has been some recent high-profile protest action going on, specifically around the Google buses, but also just um, kind of mobilizing community members against uh, the tech sector and, and I guess maybe symbols of the tech sector around San Francisco. What would you say is the purpose behind these actions? You know, some people might see it as kind of made for a sort of street theater effect in which, you know, you have a very dramatic action in the middle of the street. Um,
3: what do you hope to really show well, it's drawn attention to what the symbols are of changes in our city. And it's kind of demonstrated, you know, here are people from the city who are trying to fight for remaining to be in the city, you know, writers who are being affected. And they're standing there in front of the bus and saying, hey, we're not moving.
1: <laughs> and how have the people reacted? Or how has Google reacted if they've reacted at all?
3: You know, I think right now, in fact, because I think we have been Um, successful in all of these actions in placing the tech industry on a defensive. So now they've hired all these PR people that hasn't existed before. They're going out there and they're, you know, talking about their charity efforts. You know, Mark Benioff at the Tech Crunchies uh, Gala Award and uh, Ron Conway was also talking about, you know, what kind of charity work that the tech industry is doing. Um, But, you know, as you talked to Julia, charity is not the solution, but we are putting them on the defensive because they're realized, you know, just like John Oliver, the the comedian, said at the Crunchy, he was like, you're pissing off the entire city.
1: So when you say charity isn't enough, what do you want to see them do beyond the feel-good, kind of like we donated to the soup kitchen, or, you know, we brought mentors into this classroom? What, what do you really think would be an equitable arrangement, assuming that the tech sector is going to be a part of the San Francisco economy for a long time to come?
3: Um, well, we can go back to the buses, right? And they are taking public infrastructure and using it for their private good. Um, and we need to reverse that they can put money back into public infrastructure. You know, the, the $1 a bus per stop, you know, is just really so much chump change for them. And instead, what they can do is really invest in public infrastructure, invest in Muni. You know, Muni is deciding whether to, to continue lowered fares for seniors and youth um, in the free Muni program. These are kinds of things that they can actually support. And basically, taking what was been privatized and putting it back into the public good. So
1: just to clarify as to you know what the cause of this um, gentrification is, do you chalk it up mostly to the tech sector boom? Are there other forces at work here? I mean, uh, is there anything that's been going on with urban planning or with the California budget outlays or with general just um, lack of public investment that is also facilitating some of this?
3: I, th- I think there's another uh, key player here is real estate speculators who have capitalized on the tech sector boom to evict long-term tenants. So they've been part of this as well. And I also think that the city has not responded. Um, you know, instead, Mayor Lee is having meetings with you know tech industry every Tuesday, instead of you know having meetings with tenants every Tuesday. So there's been a lack of response
1: the tech sector is often associated with, you know, being young, often, um, many immigrants are are working in the tech sector. um, And, uh, you know, a lot of second generation kids, have you talked people about you know what the tech sector really offers because i know that you know you have people like mark zuckerberg talking about immigration reform and you know how this is bringing new types of opportunity to new parts of the national as well as the global economy what do you think of that kind of rhetoric
3: well i do think it's rhetoric and what it's covering up is is using people for profit because a lot of what they've been advocating for immigration reform has centered around guest worker programs So we know that really they're just kind of exploiting uh, other people's labor um, and it's not really about for immigration, for citizenship, for the extension of rights for the people who are undocumented here. So it's a different kind of immigration reform that serves their ends, but it's not about people's rights
1: you have been advocating for a really long time for better social policies overall that support workers beyond the minimum wage and paid sick days and other things like that what are some things that you'd like to do to kind of build on those earlier achievements you're trying to preserve uh, some of the progressive elements of San Francisco that already exists but you know in your in your dream world of San Francisco what are the types of policies that you want to see put in place in terms of housing in terms of jobs
3: well, we have to stay ahead, you know. Um, Oakland is lifting their minimum wage up to twelve twenty-five. It's not a competition between us and Oakland. It's really about finding a place that we have and keeping the city for the folks who are in here and keeping the stream alive of really having something that people can look to and be inspired by. I think some of having the highest labor standards has helped do that, you know, paid sick leave, then went on to all these other different cities what can we create here and innovate here that we can then take to the rest of the country
1: and that was kung Fung of jobs with justice and now for our favorite segment of the show it is ARG. i wish i'd written that
0: yeah. So this week we go back to um, a friend of the podcast and one time guest host of the podcast, Bryce Covert at Think Progress. And Bryce has done a great job of following sort of the issue of workplace inequality of the sexes and really focusing on the issue of working time and how that has affected. Basically, women's ability to rise in the workplace, um, women's ability to meet all of the gendered expectations that are placed on them outside of the workplace. And this piece is no exception. She has, it's called Men Are Much More Likely to Work at Home Than Women, which is a deceptively simple title for an issue that's actually really complicated, right? Um, we expect women to take on much more responsibility for a family outside of the home, um, for you know what we all call the second shift and yet when you look at the actual numbers of workers who do their work from home who are able to be flexible about their time and thus would you would think have the time to actually do some work with the family it's actually mostly men um women are less likely to get flexibility from their managers when they do ask for it, and then she notes, women are more likely to then cut back on their working hours, so which means of course you end up making less money for doing the unpaid work at home rather than for doing the work in the office that presumably pays you maybe a decent wage um, and also, of course, when you're a part-time employee you're less likely to get promoted, you're less likely to move up the uh, vaunted corporate ladder or, or just get or a, right exactly, just get a decent wage. Um, So in terms of one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast many times, one of the things that would really improve actual gender equality in the workplace is less working time, more people having more time at home to split up the home labor for... For taking less time at work to to not be seen as a a cut in your commitment to your job, um, we should actually all work less. And we should actually all have a little bit more flexibility. Unfortunately, as per usual, whenever flexibility is a perk of the job rather than something that we all have a right to, it is mostly just given to men. So thanks, Bryce, for picking up once again one of my favorite subjects. And there will be a link, of course, at the Dissent Magazine website. Excellent, and that's a good segue to uh, my arg for the week
1: um, because no, it really is a good segue this time. I wasn't lying. Um, the uh, the the my pick was uh, an investigation by ProPublica, um, and it actually it, it made me think about sort of an international perspective on this and um, the, some of the trends that Bryce is noting in terms of how much we work and and how this commitment to work has really eaten into um, everything from you know our average leisure time during the day. To to the time that we spend caring for our children, um, you know, we, we actually are, are quite exceptional uh, from a global perspective in terms of our overall levels of, of work and, and the lack of benefits um, that we have to deal with the rest of our lives. And um, ProPublica looks at um, another international Uh, context of comparison, which is how temp workers are treated. And they actually come up with some pretty striking findings when they map out um, the legal landscape facing temporary workers in the United States and the types of protections that temporary workers are afforded in other industrialized countries, often much poorer industrialized countries, actually. I mean, you'd think that, you know, a temp worker in the U.S. might be, you know, better off than, say, a temp worker in Turkey or, or Italy or China, but um, very often, it, it's not really the case. Temp workers operate virtually with no protection on the job in many cases, and often they're they're um, stuck, you know, doing some of the most dangerous jobs. Oftentimes they are specifically chosen to do dangerous jobs with minimal liability for the employer, um, and Uh, The the ProPublica reports um, in several states, data showed that temps are three times more likely than regular workers to suffer amputations on the job. Um, Even some of the country's largest companies have relied on immigrant labor brokers and fly-by-night temp agencies that have cheated workers out of wages. So wage theft losing an arm Uh, these are all day-to-day hazards that temp workers face every day in the job and uh, they have no union uh, they have no sort of organized channel for grievances in many cases they're not even sure who their employer really is because they're paid through some sort of murky staffing agency that operates as a third party and therefore limits the liability of both of the uh, so-called joint employers um, uh, there are some added protections on the state law, but on the federal law, you know, they're they're often um, you know uh, left out of uh, many of the basic protocols for um, occupational safety and health administration oversight, um, and this isn't just an issue of of lax oversight for, you know, occupational injury and other things like that. I mean, they also have to go without fair pay laws in many cases. Uh, These are the laws that protect people from wage discrimination, gender discrimination, even the right to informed consent before agreeing to a contract. So, I mean, this is all pretty um, outrageous in in any context when you think about it happening in the most developed economy in the world. It's kind of sad. And uh, according to ProPublica, the United States is ranked 41st Among 43 developed and emerging economies, um, in terms of its protections for temp workers and so that really ought to make you think about the role of the temp workforce in the economy because it is one of the few segments of the economy that is really really adding jobs at a very fast rate as Sarah has reported extensively I mean w- we are ha- we're looking at an economy that is increasingly one of of some form of temp work becoming a part of uh, our everyday lives and often you have this whole new workforce of, of what we might call perma temps right these people who are basically you know doing the same exact work as as the work that they possibly used to do as full-time workers but then unfortunately they were relegated to this position where they're doing the same job but just for you know crappier wages and no benefits so same job crappier benefits. That's basically the new economy that America is working towards
0: right now. That is the story of everyone's life. But I, I we tried to bring some good news this today, in addition to nuclear catastrophe and, and the permatemping of That's everything. And, and and in
1: your in your in your reporting on permatemps, I mean you saw some actual active organizing going on with temp workers. Weirdly with
0: Weirdly we saw some actual active organizing with temp workers with the UAW in the South, but you know, they are they weren't at the chattanooga volkswagen plant they were at the smyrna and canton mississippi nissan plants in any case we talked about that in a recent episode i will put a link to that up at the website as well as links to everything we've talked about here probably more than you ever wanted to know about it Um, but if there's something you want to know that we didn't cover feel free to email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org tweet at us at hashtag belabored Send us your suggestions, story tips, ideas, complaints, your low wages, anything you want to send us. We want to hear from you. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured podcast, produced by Natasha Lewis. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belaboured.